Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Okay, you guys, Melissa Broder, she's the author of the novel The Pisces, the essay collection So Sad Today, and four poetry collections, including Last Sext. She's written for the New York Times, L.com, Vice, Vogue Italia, and New York Magazine's The Cut. And her poems have appeared in Poetry, The Iowa Review, Tin House, and Guernica. And she's the winner of the Pushcart Prize for Poetry. Now, Ryan O'Connell, he's the writer, creator, and star of the Emmy-nominated television show called Special on Netflix that is based on his own memoir. And he's done a lot of other stuff as well. (laughs) We're super glad he's here. All right, you guys, if you have any problems at all, just refresh your screen and come on right back to us. We are so happy you're here. And now, without further ado, wherever you are, I don't care if you're from Iowa or Boston or wherever you are, please put your hands together for these fantastic talents, Melissa Brody and Ryan O'Connell. All right. (laughs) Um, Okay, I'm addicted. I'm so sad that we couldn't be there in person because everyone at Skylight is so hot and it's a mood. You know what I mean? Definitely. It is a hot book environment i miss feeling cruisy in a bookstore you know what i mean it's like very tbt have you ever done anything in a bookstore no sadly but you've never gotten busy in a bookstore bathroom no but put it on the post-pandemic list (laughs) yes it's all happening Um, there's a lot of life to be lived exactly exactly um but before we do any living um do you want to start with a little reading moment of whatever Let's have that moment. Um, so I'll read a chunk, you read a chunk, and then we'll just like talk. Gorgeous. Right? And, then we'll, and then we'll take cues. We'll take questions. So line them up. All right. So um, I'm going to read um, a section of the book where, um, so our protagonist is Rachel. She's 24. Um, she's sort of our lady of body dysmorphia and uh, food restriction. And as of now, and um, she um, goes to the same frozen yogurt shop every day. Her lunch is, it's a, it's a double. It's, a, it's like a bi-part lunch. So it's the first thing she does is she hits Subway. She gets the same salad every day. It's 160 calories. Um, does not eat in the Subway because doesn't want to see the, like doesn't want to be witnessed by the sandwich artists. Then proceeds next door to Yo Good. Um, her favorite yogurt shop, and she really likes the counter boy there. He's an orthodox boy, and what she loves about him is that he doesn't peer pressure her about toppings. He doesn't question her order, which is a very specific order, um, because 
it, it has to be exact just to the lip of the cup, just to the lip of the cup, or it's calorically uncountable. Um, so one day she goes to Yogood and um, the Orthodox boy is no longer there. And who is there but this woman, Miriam, who is a mystic mensch, who is about Rachel's age. She's actually the sister of the yogurt boy. She is um, she's also in her early 20s. She is what I would call a kosher coquette. Um, she is zoftig. She is luscious. She is voluptuous. Um, she's everything that Rachel uh, will not allow herself to be. So, um, and she starts to foist toppings um, on Rachel. Um, now there is one moment where Rachel returns to Yo Good and Adiv has come back. And this is the scene I'm gonna read. So Rachel goes to Yo Good, she's ready for her lunchtime ritual. For those of you with food rituals, you know how important it is that everything remains within the box and Adiv has returned. Chapter 14, a great miracle occurred. Adiv had returned. Shalom, I called out when I saw him behind the counter. Shalom, he said, looking very confused. Never, I was sure, had any customer been so happy to see Adiv back at it. This was my burning bush, my Noah and the ark and the dove. I was to be captain of my dessert realm again. No more peer pressured extras or yogurt in conversation. I wondered how his experience in Israel had been, what his views were, but a food service interaction seemed an inopportune time to say, Hey, any thoughts on a two-state solution? I'll have the cheesecake, I said, omitting any discourse on land disputes. Then Miriam emerged from the back. Hey, Rachel, she said, signaling that she'd handle me. Oh, hi, I said. Be useful and go unbox the pretzel cones, she said to Adiv. Adiv complied. I watched her grab a 16-ounce cup and pull the lever on the machine. The yogurt began its ascent, swirling upward until it overtook the brim entering the unsafe space above it. But then it transcended that realm, soaring to a new unthinkable altitude before reaching a summit that was miles above where she began. Even for Miriam's style, the serving was absurd. I want to give you a free topping, she said, because you didn't like your last yogurt. That's okay, I said, I don't want one. Come on, she said, there has to be something you like. What about sprinkles? I'm just gonna put sprinkles on it, just a little. Rainbow, I said instinctively, then thought, fuck. I watched her spooning on the sprinkles and noticed for the first time that she had lovely fingernails, smooth and egg-shaped, trimmed neatly. She wasn't a biter like me, a compulsive habit that began in childhood as something of a snack. Now I painted my nail, oh, Rachel's mom was like really fucked up about food. Um, now I, uh, not totally fictional. Now I painted my nails red as a deterrent, but I only ended up biting off the polish too, spitting flakes of crimson. When she handed me the yogurt, every inch of that mammoth peak was covered in rainbow sprinkles. It was gorgeous, seamless, as though the yogurt were a rainbow itself. No separation between dessert and topping. Its beauty made me think for a moment that it should have always been this way. I stared at the sculptural masterpiece in my hand. I wanted to kiss it, to make out with it, to touch it with my tongue and lips and explore what those tiny textures felt like. Simply holding the cup, I was rocketed back to Sprinkle's past. I remembered that they were actually made of tiny bits of dried frosting and the way you could dissolve them in your mouth, suck until they softened back to frosting once again, 
completing one of life's great cycles of transformation. See, said Miriam, everyone loves a topping. I smiled at her and felt weak. Then, as though compelled by an otherworldly force, I brought that majestic mountain to my mouth, licked it, and took a bite. Mmm, I said with my mouth full, thanks. I closed my eyes. The sprinkles were so delicious, melting there on my tongue, that my throat began to call out for them. What would be the harm? What would be the harm, said my throat? What would be so bad about just swallowing? Of course, I knew what the harm would be. Sprinkles were loaded with sugar, and there was no way of knowing how many of them were packed into any given mouthful. From one bite to the next, it would be impossible to calculate a caloric load. Panicking, I spun on my heel and headed for the door. I hoped that I could keep the concoction in my mouth long enough without swallowing to get to the trash can on the curb. But when I reached the can, my lips would not open to relinquish the mouthful. I stood there and swallowed it down my gullet. Then, to my horror, I found myself sticking my tongue into a crevice between yogurt and cup, where a small pile of naked sprinkles had fallen. I licked them out. I didn't stop, but pressed on to where the sprinkles and some, dro some drips of melted yogurt had formed a viscous union. I chewed these bites up quickly and, then, and swallowed again and again, as though this were the fastest way to get rid of them. While I ate, I watched myself, like I was hovering up above, split into two beings. One of me was the one doing the eating. The other observed myself in shock as I continued to devour it all. Stop, stop, called out the observer me, but it was no use. I was consumed by the yogurt, all five senses bathing in its drips and swirls, as though I had entered some yogurt door. No thought, no vision or sound, but the yogurt and its sprinkles. Any fear or hesitation fully eclipsed by sensation, the crunch, the slurp, the melt, the heavenly feeling of cleaning each side evenly with my tongue, hardness and softness, sweetness and more sweetness, a prism of beauty on earth and above it, and me, the me on the ground, nothing but a giant mouth and tongue, eating and eating for nothing, not one thing except sheer pleasure alone. I don't know how long I stood there in front of the trash can, devouring, licking, swallowing. I only knew that when my mind and body were finally united again, the first thing I noticed was the sour smell of trash in the warm sun. I felt afraid, then a hot shame. It had really happened. I'd eaten the whole thing. All that remained was a dribble at the bottom with two sprinkles floating in it, one pink and one blue. I dug them out with my spoon and put that last little bite in my mouth. Something had taken me over, possessed me, some phantom transmitted from Miriam to me, or a demon lurking latent all these years, now suddenly awakened. I had not lost control like that with food since I was 16 years old. I'd thought the demon was dead. No, that wasn't true. I'd sensed the demon in me all along, waiting for the right moment to open my mouth suck the world down my throat. All of my restriction, my efforts at control, as I tiptoed daily around the edge of hunger, were enacted in the name of keeping that demon shut up. Sleep late to delay calories, write everything down, eat ice, avoid friends. But in all that busyness, I'd forgotten what made the demon space so dangerous in the first place. When you were in it, it felt fucking great. Oh my God, I That's love me. it.
Wow, so much non-consensual yogurt making. Yeah. The yogurt takes over. No means no, except <laughs> no means yo. No <laughs> means yo. Kill me. Okay, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. Um, I had to order. Uh, I had to Postmates frozen yogurt twice while reading milk, but I just have to let you know um, because I just craved it. It's like reading yogurt erotica. Yeah. yeah. Erotica. Well, speaking of erotica, I'm going to read a section that is a lesbian sex fantasy. And, uh, you know, I'm doing it as a form of exposure therapy. So uh, let's see. Let's see what happens. It's chapter 41. After work, I had no energy for the gym. I chewed two pieces of nicotine gum at once and went anyway. When I changed into my workout clothes, I discovered that my spandex shorts were now so tight they gave me camel toe. Chronic camel toe. Every time I fixed the toe, it emerged again somehow deeper. On the elliptical machine, I let the shorts rub against me, feeling horny. It was some new kind of horniness, or maybe a very old kind raw lust, like when I first discovered masturbation and indulged in it daily. The horniness felt like hunger itself. I was fully famished, and I didn't know whether it was food or sex I wanted. Maybe I wanted both. All of this eating seemed to have made me more sexually charged awake. But what was waking up exactly? My pussy or my soul? I was scared of my soul. What if my soul was monstrous? If a person had a monstrous soul, should she still follow it? I switched to the stationary bike. As I pedaled, my pussy rubbed against the black leather seat and I felt a delicious warmth spread throughout my pelvis. The front of the bike seat was horn-shaped. It poked out in front of me like a cock. I took to this right away, having my own thick cock. I wanted to make the cock come alive, to say a blessing over it. Frankencock, a bike seat dick. I began reciting quietly any Hebrew I could remember. Okay, I don't know how to pronounce Hebrew, so. Wait, what page are you on, Ryan? I'll do the Hebrew for you. 162, top of 162. Okay. Ryan doesn't want to get canceled for appropriating the Hebrew. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, here we go. Nun gimel hei shin. Nun gimel hei shin. I whispered, intoning the letters of the dreidel to the rhythm of my pedaling. Osei shalom bimromav, hu yasei shalom alenu. I sang to myself using the old tune I knew, but I felt guilty using my grandmother's favorite song to animate a penis. Eitz chaim chai lemachazim ba, vetomechaha meushar. I crooned internally, delivering a captivating performance of the Tree of Life song. Suddenly I felt incredibly powerful, as though my cock were really coming alive. I imagined as I pedaled that Anna was sucking me. Anna is her coworker. For the first time, I felt no hesitance in fantasizing about her sexually. It was as though the cock protected me from judgment. I had total power over Anna. She looked up at me as I teased her face. She begged me to let her lick it. When I finally let her have it, grunting, all right, suck. I acted like I was doing her a favor. She licked and sucked me and I felt stimulated by two things, her mouth and my newfound dominance. I felt like another kind of creature altogether. Some new being I had invoked. If I was a woman, I was not me as I'd known myself, but a woman with more courage than I thought I'd had. I was a woman of impulse, a woman of instinct. I was a woman of pleasure and a woman of confidence. I was a woman of appetites, a growling beast. I was a person. I continued to pedal, closing my eyes, rubbing against the seat. I imagined Anna sliding my cock between her tits, rubbing on me, her nipples, grasping as though she could come from that contact alone. It was like her nipples were two clits. I whipped it, her nipples with my dick and then whipped her face with it. Her expression grew serious, ardent. She begged me to put it inside her. 
At this point in the fantasy, I hit something of a choose-your-own-adventure. One choice was to lick her pussy. I wanted to taste her so badly. Another was to deprive her. I didn't want to give her any help in getting wet. I wanted to know that her wetness was effortless, spontaneous, a reaction to the sight and feel of me. I wanted her to be so intoxicated by my presence that she became a river. In the end, I went with option A, lick it. Why should I rob myself the taste of her elixir? I ate her dripping wet pussy, ate it good, but I kept my reaction very self-contained. No reason for her to know how much pleasure it gave me. On the outside, I was a haughty daughter, then an impenetrable soldier, just doing her job gruffly. But on the inside, I reveled in honest taste, coppery like a shipwrecked chalice at the bottom of the ocean. Now she was crying for my cock. I decided that I would fuck her from behind. I turned her around and bit her gently on the ass, which, which but was ample but saggy with age. The sagginess turned me on even more. I massaged her ass cheeks, opened them like a book, and aimed straight for her pussy hole, a lovely shade of purple seedless crepe. I parked my car cock right there at the entrance. She moaned, but not out of pain. Please, she said, please. When I felt she had begged long enough, I activated Frankencock. She groaned with delight and began moving back and forth on the length of me so that I barely had to thrust. But I wanted to thrust. I grabbed her hips and steadied her. Stop fucking moving, I said. Then I used the power of my own hips to thrust deeper into her. I could go as long as I wanted, but while my phantom cock was made out of a seat, I could still feel all the pleasure in my organ. I felt a surge of tenderness for her as I came. Do not go there, I said to myself. No heart. I rode out the orgasm with the pleasure between my legs alone. It felt so good that I gave a little yelp out loud. I looked over at the man on the bike to my right. He was an older man, maybe 70 with white hair. He had headphones in and seemed totally absorbed in what he was listening to. I got the feeling it was an audiobook. David Baldacci or, or Clive Klesler. I laughed and closed my eyes again. Then I pedaled out the last waves of my orgasm. Okay, hot. Wow. I just made you eat pussy. I know. I feel very like first semester at Sarah Lawrence right now. <laughs> right? Okay. It's a very experimental evening. Oh my god, the comment section's popping up. Oh fuck. Okay. So <laughs> as you know, Melissa, I'm a very serious journalist and I only engage in hardball questions and no, hardball, sorry, that's industry talk for like really intense questions. So I'm gonna just dive in deep with um just my first question. Which is, uh, what is your favorite frozen yogurt place in LA? Now, are you a old school 80s mall frozen yogurt girl, like Penguins, The Big Chill, West LA for Life? Or are you a modern girl, Yogurt Land, maybe even Yogurt Stop in West Hollywood? I thought it was with modern girl, you were gonna say like something, like one of those fuckers that's like, the hell, like the shit with like the things that keep you alive in it. Oh, like, I don't um, want oh, my food to keep me activated. alive. It's like activated. It's like yeah. active culture, activated culture of stuff. Yeah, yeah, like the pink berry, deriv the pink berry family of yogurts. And I don't yeah. want. I prefer my food to not keep me alive. I um, totally. Yeah, I want to. I I want my food to be expediting this process. So um, I I actually love yogurt land, um, because I love a topping. I love an abundance of topping. What about you? Um. I'm old school. I'm very TBT. I want, I like the penguin, penguins, frozen yogurt and the big chill. I want to taste something that feels so deeply unnatural that I might grow flippers afterwards. You know what I mean? It's important. It's really important. 
another quick question. Mary Fuck Kill, poems, Twitter, novels. Um, oh, that's a really good question. Um, oh, very e so easy. Kill Twitter, fuck a poem, marry a novel, because, I mean, yeah. What about you? Um, oh, um, I would kill Twitter, because, I mean, I have famously deleted mine, because um, I'm above it now. Uh, and then I would fuck a poem because they're so sexy. Oh my God. Like there's such a vibe and they're so confident. You get in they're, and you get out. They're so confident. They're like, babe, I don't need to be that much. And I'm chicer than all of you, which I'm like, okay, respect. And then marry a novel. Cause I guess they're long and like they're respected and like you should marry them. Like they'd have a good job and like give you kids and stuff like that. Well, writing a novel is kind of like a long-term relationship. Like, because it's like, you know, in the beginning, there's the magic of like the idea of it. Mm -hmm. And then like a hundred years later, you're like, like, what was I thinking? Like, why? I can't believe that, that like love is actually like, like work. Like, where's the drug? You know, because the idea of the novel is a drug, right? That's a fucking drug. You're like high on your own shit. You're like, yeah, I'm going to fucking write a novel about this fucking shit. And then like, you're in there and you're like, wait, like, I have to go, like, pick it up toilet paper at CVS. Like, wait, I have to, like, listen to it and spend, like, I have to be present for this fucking not, like, yeah. So you have to read it on Zoom to a bunch of strangers that are in a group chat? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, a global, and a global pandemic? Yeah. Um, totally. Yeah. Well, well, speaking of the journey of the novel, uh, this is your second one. Tell me how the germ of the idea of Milk Fed got started. So Milkfed actually started with a very, a really bad short story I wrote when I was 19 that was just a, a germ of this. It was um, basically, there was no Jew stuff. The Jew, the Jewiness was not involved in that iteration. And it was, um, but it was two women, one um, with uh, a very disordered eater and one very voluptuous and indulgent who fall in love with each other. But it was really bad. Like, I think Miriam was called Gaia and she was like an, a woman of the earth. And like, I think it was actually that story that kind of set me off just writing poems for the next like, like, you know, 10 years. It traumatized you that bad? Yeah. Well then, so what incited you to pick it up again? Um, well, I knew that it was a story I always wanted to tell. Um, and um, a couple of years ago, I started feeling this sort of longing for the Judaism of my childhood. And like, it's weird because, you know, I'm in LA, there's like no shortage of Jews here. Mm -hmm. Like it's basically Fiddler on the Roof, like at all times, right? <laughs> like, I mean, it's like a giant Jew. But I, so I was like, what, what is it that I'm feeling this nostalgia for? And I realized it was, um, it was the, the food element and the Judaism, the, the innocence I would feel when my grandparents would take me to a Jewish deli, um, some of which st still exist, like, um, Second Avenue Deli still around, but it moved out of the East Village. But like Ratner's Dairy Restaurant gone. Gus's Pickles I don't think is on the street anymore. Um, and there was an innocence I felt, you know, and an indulgence. And um, you know, it was an amazing. It was amazing to think that at one point a sort of any component of an organized religion had felt that way to me, you know. And um, so. And food and Judaism have always been like inextricably linked for me. Like one of my earliest mem memories of being a Jew was like building a diorama of a sukkah, which is a hut. It's like a, the sukkah is like a harvest hut that like Jews build out of like grapes and shit and like okay. sticks and sleep under during the harvest. But we would build these like little diorama versions 
um, with like graham crackers and icing and I would like steal the ingredients and binge eat them, you know? And so that's like my, that's like early Judaism for me. And so I realized that these two stories, like that these two, that this story and that story were the same story. How did you feel committing yourself to the topic of food? Because writing a novel, it's like you're just building a world. And sometimes you spend more time in that world than you do in this world, which TBH is a blessing these days. But like, how did you feel just being like, okay, this is going to be my journey. I'm going to be just like talking a lot about disordered eating and I'm going to do long, sensual portraits of frozen yogurt. Like, were you a little nervous to be like that? Or was part of you excited to go deep in that way? I mean, it felt very natural. I'd say that like my oldest relationship is my fraught relationship with food and my body. You know, that's mm. like by far my longest term relationship. And I think being someone who had an eating disorder when I was younger, I mean, I wouldn't say that I am like miraculously healed now. You know, the thing about like healing, I think that like in this is my little, I think that like in, in sort of in like the, the self-care industrial complex, we're sort of presented with like, you arrive at a place of healed and then like, that's it, you're free. You know, mm -hmm. like you've bought the thing on the, on goop and like you are ascended. But for me, I find that like recovery from anything is it's always a journey, right? And you have to eat to live. So you have to deal with food for the rest of your life. But having had like what was a more pronounced eating disorder when I was younger, you kind of, anyone who's had an eating disorder knows, you sort of get a PhD in all this, like, you get a PhD in, like, all this information that you then, it's very hard to get rid of. So, um, you know, I did my research um, years ago. Did you feel like you had any breakthroughs regarding your own relationship with food while writing the novel, or did it make you think about it in a different way? No. <laughs> it didn't. Like, nope, still here. Well, no. first of all, I'm like addicted about that because it's like, I feel like in LA, we talk a lot about food and we talk about like, oh my God, what cleanse are you on? I got staying thin, LOL, like whatever. But we rarely, I think, really talk about like, what we talk about when we talk about food. You know what I mean? It's like, it's there's a real darkness there. And I think that you really get into the minutia of the everyday hum of ha having an unhealthy relationship with food. Um, were you nervous about how people were going to react to that? Or did you kind of feel like this is your truth? Let's go balls to the wall. Yeah. Like I feel like it's, if it's your own shit, like you can, it is then yours to, or if, or, you know, if it's like, it is then, you know, you can joke about, like, I have a long history of, of making fun of my own darkness, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and I did get some pushback, like, with So Sad Today, you know, like, you can't talk about depression this way. This is very serious. And I'm like, dude, it's my depression. I can talk about however I want, you know? And I feel like having, you know, I would never talk about someone else's challenges. Um, I mean, I would never, I wouldn't attempt to, like, write narratives about someone else's challenges. Um, anyway, well, maybe some characters, you know, that's fiction. But like, I wouldn't be like joking about like somebody else's challenges. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But, like, mm -hmm. my own challenges are like open fucking season, you know? Well, you know, what about you? Because you're writing as humorous, and you certainly write, you write a lot with about like the complications of living in a human body and the challenges of living in a body. Yeah. I mean, I just, I don't think that I pretend to know everything. And I think that's like where a lot of people kind of get it wrong in a way. I think that like, I'm very much a work in prog. And like when I'm talking about my stuff, it's very much 
my stuff and I'm not speaking for a, like a large swath of the population. I feel like it sounds really corny, but I feel like if, like if you're operating from a place of honesty in your work, like people will see that and reward you for that. Like I'm not trying to be sensationalistic and I'm not trying to like be provocative. I feel like it's not my fault that like my very existence is provocative because I'm gay and disabled. Like, sorry, babe, that's on society. <laughs> Send them the bill. Um, do you know what I mean? So like, I just feel like as long as you're coming at it authentically, um, people seem to respond well to it. I don't know. Does that I think sense? that's right. Yeah. No, yeah. I think that's absolutely, that's absolutely right. Um, so, I it's mean, not your fault. You're fucking sensational. You know, it's like I, I didn't know. need to be political. <laughs> I'm no. not a political person. I eat chopped salads at La Scala. Not to be political, but I exist. By the way, speaking of chopped salads at La Scala, I was scanning for a reference of the Leon chopped. It's and... not in there. It's not in there. Not in which, there. Which, you know what? I actually respect because, like, it's not. It's clearly reserved in the sacred space for you, which I support. And yeah. like, you know what I mean? Well, the Subway salad that Rachel eats is very much a derivation of, and I think I told you this once, Ryan introduced me to La Scala chopped salad upon moving to Los Angeles. Um, that was sort of our, for our second meeting and we've always gone and gotten this fucking salad. So uh, we get the salad a lot. I liked La Scala, I, well, I, whatever. Now La Scala is like- um, Well, they got, they got in trouble, but it's you fine. know, whatever. I don't give a shit, it's but anyway, yeah. yeah. I'm like, do you, I'm like, can you eat the art without thinking about the artist? And I'm like, yes, I can. <laughs> the art is still fucking valid. I'm putting it in my mouth. But um, but the Subway salad that Rachel eats is actually a derivation, a very, um, you would never eat it, but it's a very shit derivation. And it's, I think I, I told you about it once. I told you, like, I've been eating this chopped salad at fucking Subway. Oh, I think you haven't, like, And I, I think you bones, were a bit horrified. Yeah, it's- My bones turned to crushed ice. I was a little horrified. You have to get the book to see what the salad is. Um, I'm not gonna tell you what is in the salad. Um, so this is like my little enticement. There's a this is like the QVC portion. I'm like, yes. you know, when they always touch things on the Home Shopping Network, they're always like, yeah. it, they're like it's so soft. So order milk fed to find out the special Subway salad. That was you can hit the teal button. That was very sensual. And that also leads me to the next question of, how do you write such good sex scenes? I have to say like, it's so, I mean, I get, as a gay male, I wasn't expecting to be titillated um by some of the pictures that you were drawing with your brain but i was like okay i want frozen yogurt and i might want a woman so i mean like with so, so i was confused That's how do you do it well um i think i write to turn myself on first and mm -hmm. foremost like mm -hmm. i don't think i could write a good sex scene if i wasn't um Turn, turning myself on. Mm -hmm. um, I've also been doing it to turn myself on, like from a utilitarian perspective for a very long time. Cause like folks, I'm old. And like when I was growing up, like there was no porn. In my day, there was no yeah, porn. Yeah, okay. come on. Like I was making my own audio tapes. Like I was writing my own weird erotic shit. Are you like the old grandma Rose from the Titanic right yes, now? Yes, I'm like, like it's been 84 years. In my day, we didn't have X hamster. Um, but um, no, so I think I write to turn myself on. Then in the editorial process, I will edit it for like, um, I guess, well, the way I, I'll edit it the way I edit all my writing, which is I edit and edit until it gets quiet. And like what I mean by quiet is nothing sticks. There's no voice in my head that goes, 
mm, that could be a different word or mm, that's not quite what you mean or mm, you're bullshitting or like mm, that sucks you know like and that happens over time so I'll, I'll definitely rigorously edit it but the first is just like letting it rip well let's talk about that because you have a very unconventional way of writing a first draft which mm -hmm. is that you do voice dictation dictation on surrey right mm -hmm. yeah uh, when I heard this, my mind was truly blown. First of all, I can't even figure out how to work Surrey or do any of those things, let alone write a gorgeous, sexy lesbian yogurt novel. So, like, what, how do you, like, how did this start? Like, and how, do you still do it today? Is it, like, your guiding light? Yeah, so, um, I, okay, so I used to live in New York, um, as did you. And I would write poems, fuckable poems on the, not to be married or killed on the subway. <laughs> And because um, I like to write in places where I'm not supposed to be writing. Like if I could write at a funeral, that's like my probably my ideal because it takes the pressure off because I'm like, mm -hmm. I have so much noise in my head and so much perfectionism that I have to like play games with myself to dismantle the perfectionism. So I write poems a lot on the subway or like walking. Um, and um, when I moved to Los Angeles, I couldn't type and drive. Like I couldn't like write poems on the 405. So I started dictating in my car and it literally changed the nature of uh, the content, like the form, the literally, like the process changed the content. So my language became more conversational and um, that's how, and my line breaks disappeared. And that's how I ended up writing the essays and So Sad Today. I just, I was like, I'm writing essays now. This is so weird. Um, like this is an essay, this is not a poem. Um, although I guess someone could be like, well, what's the difference? But whatever, it was not, they're not poems, they're essays, okay? And so then when I got the idea to write the Pisces, I was like, well, I don't know if I could write a novel. And I was like, well, what if I just do it the way that I did So Sad today and just did like dictated three paragraphs a day and just like let it be shit and just like let go of the results and just, and so I did it. And it takes about nine months to dictate a first draft doing three paragraphs a day. But I don't stop and correct anything. Like even if I see that Siri is translating the name wrong, all the names wrong and stuff, which it always does. Like my first round of edits is then later just to try to figure out what I was even saying. But I don't correct anything as I go because that's the beauty. It's gotta be messy. It's gotta be disgusting. What if you feel more inspired to write more than three paragraphs? Do you always stop it no matter what? No, three paragraphs a day. But I'll, a lot of times, like, I'll do, like, nine on a Monday, and then I'm like, yeah, bitch, like, I don't have to do, like, any for the next two days, you know? Do you feel, you've had such an interesting trajectory from starting off with poems and then obviously having a wildly successful Twitter account to doing a book of essays and to doing now novels and the now screenplays and television stuff. Are you surprised by how many mediums you fucked with? And, like, was this kind of, looking back, are you like, oh, this is kind of something I always wanted, but never gave myself permission to have, or, you know what I mean? Like, what have you, how have you made sense of that? Um, I am surprised, because I always, I'm like, I can't, I'm not going to be able to do this every time, you know? Like, I'm like, how the fuck do you do this? But then you just figure out how to do it. Um, and I did not move to LA to get into screenwriting. Like I moved here um, because my husband has health issues and we couldn't live in New York anymore. And I didn't want to move to like Miami or Phoenix and we needed to be somewhere warm. Um, and I thought my life was ending when I moved here. I was like, I'm in, within a year, I'm going to be selling my poems for a dollar on the beach. Like what will I do without the New York, my New York poetry community? <laughs> I've actually done, 
I feel I feel that I have a, done okay without the New York poetry community. Not no, I mean I, you know, God bless them. That's York right. Poetry. Drag them straight to fucking hell. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> but it's been fine. But I didn't think it was going to be fine. I didn't think it was going to be fine. And um, yeah, so um, yeah, so I'm surprised. I am surprised. And um, yeah. What medium do you like the most? Or like, well, let's talk about TV and film because you talk about the TV and film industry plays a little bit of a role in this novel because yeah. your character works at a talent agency or a management agency or management company. And, uh, you know, it's like, it almost, you would think it's parody if you weren't in the business, as they say, but uh, as someone who's also in the business, um, it is very real. Like it's straight from the headlines. How, I mean, it's was real it, fake. Yeah, it's bullshit. But how was it just a total fucking LOL a thon writing those scenes? Like, how did it, like, was it just a nice little, like, delight? Or, like, how did it feel skewering this business that you're a part of? And so it, am I. It was so fun. I had the best fucking time. Like, the character Ofer, who has, like, her boss, Ofer. So she has this boss for those of you, for, for, for the people at home. Um, she has this boss over and he's like, well, wait, I'll just read this one paragraph about him. It's so fucking funny. I'll just tell you about Ofer. So Ofer, um, who makes her go to lunch and like hazes her into eating. So it's a, I, I hate communal lunches. Like, I, I mean, like mm. I don't want to be with a big crew, but um, so, okay. Here's Ofer. So Ofer was an agent and then he left the agency world because he like because he thought he had a soul and became a manager. Um, so okay. Ofer was let's see. Oh wait, no, that's not what I want to read. Hold on. Um, oh yeah, here. Ofer. Um, all right. Ofer had started in the mailroom at Gersh and worked his way up to agent. Nine years later, he'd left the cutthroat agency world to open a talent management company, the crew, which made him think he had a soul. Worse yet, his wife had just given birth to twin daughters, and he now identified as a feminist. Ofer was acquiring a perfunctory knowledge of social justice as dictated by think pieces on diversity, inclusion, and equal pay in The Hollywood Reporter. He made constant references to his privilege, also our privilege to be working there. So like the what I find fascinating, and not just about Hollywood, but also about just media in general, is that like literally the best intentioned things um, can so easily be turned into a product mm -hmm. or a brand or commodified. Like I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated by the by what like, you know, like McFeminism, right? Like yeah, bit like big feminism, like uh, you know. And I'm like that that sort of and yeah, I'm fascinated by it. I love it. I find it you know the Ruth Bader Ginsburg tote bag of it all. Yeah, I mean, because we live under capitalism, it's like you commodify something immediately. And it's really funny because we live in a world now that is dealing with such weighty issues and experiencing such a reckoning, but we're also just fully deep throating capitalism. So it's like, it's like literally like my Instagram stories, it's like someone like posting like a copy of White Fragility and then and the next uh, post is them uh, doing an ad for flat tummy tea. And I'm like, ah! Like literally, like how do we get here? Like what's going on? Do you know what I mean? A hundred percent. Anything. That's America, right? Anything is. can is a product. But I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Like I think it's. I'm fascinated by um the buying into that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah I'm. Well, I. It's. It, it's. Yeah. Well, it's like it's just like. And Hollywood's me, a great place to to play with that. Well, it's just like to me, like being a good person or like 
altruism or whatever is like antithetical to capitalism. Like, like, and trying to merge the two of them is truly, I mean, it gives me material for days. I mean, it's like, it's so misguided. And it's like, honey, you got to divorce. Do you know what I mean? You got to section that off. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, like there's this idea of people are, well, it seems to me that there's a lot of focus on declaring certitude, right? Like declaring moral certitude. And like, what better way to do that than like through the brand, you know, like, like literally like when, when, um, you know, when justice becomes a brand or when feminist ideals become a brand, like you get to declare that certitude. And I actually, I feel like in MilkFed, I wanted to explore like um, the, the notion of certitude, right? Like how, like what are we being fed? Who has fed mm. it to us? Where are the ideas in our head? How do we know what we know to be true, right? And can belief like of the intellectual or emotional variety make something true? Like diff there can be two groups that hold completely warring beliefs, right? And they both are so, they're both they're both completely convinced that they that they are the keepers of the truth. Yeah. Um, so what does that mean? And and how do we live also when when those conflicts exist like within us, right? When we're not sure, when we are when we are the keepers of two uh, warring beliefs. Yeah. So, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so this book is a lot about mothering to me. I mean, it's in the title, but it also plays even into some of the sexual fantasies of the book and the character has mommy issues. Do you feel like all just roads lead back to your parents or to your mom? Like, like that, was that kind of a big inspiration for this? Cause it feels like it's the theme kind of hovering over the book. Um, personally, yes. <laughs> Not going to speak for your mom. <laughs> No, but you can speak for whatever mom you want. <laughs> mom yeah. <anywhere. laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, our parents are our first gods, right? Our parents yeah. are our first gods. And they give us, um, they give us our first religions, so to speak. And, you know, I think that even atheists, everybody has gods, you know, they could be the god of money. It can be the god of vanity. It can be the god of beauty. It can be the god of success. It can be the god of like romantic love, achievement. You know, even if these gods aren't like theological, um, we worship at a lot of altars. And so um, I think because it's our parents who give us like those first um, their directions as to like this is what this is what is important to worship right like mm -hmm. this is the way to perceive the world a religion right a religion is a way to perceive the world um how can how can it not um influence um who who we are and our whole way of being absolutely i mean i think a lot of the book is about that search for meaning through sex food religion. I mean, do you see Rachel's desires kind of interacting with yours? Is there an overlap there? Yeah, well, I think, you know, for, um, I think that there's a lot of, um, I've, I always thought that we should like that for a long time, I thought like, well, sexuality could be compartmentalized from mm -hmm. at hunger could be compartmentalized from familial yearning could be compartmentalized from spiritual longing and i've kind of um I, I don't think that they are separate i think that 
they all in, influence each other, you know? Um, there's a writer, Janine Roth, who's a Jew. Um, and she's sort of like, she's like the food lady. Like she writes about like, like, like when I was going through my binge eating years, I read a lot of Janine Roth trying to get it to get my shit together. Um, and she has this book, Women, Food, and God. And she's like, you know, your relationship with um, food is your relationship with yourself and is your relationship with God. And I'm like, fuck, dude. Like, I don't have a lot of, like, I claim that I have, you know, like a power. I, I do like, feel like I have this for like ongoing relationship with like some power that's not necessarily me um but i want to like but like actually i'm really trying to be in control here you know mm -hmm. um so yeah so oh yeah i mean yes they're all interdependent and well what I about you tell me about <laughs> you and food and sex ryan i don't know like, baby what's it like, what's it like filming what's it like filming um scenes where you have to be um like in, i've only seen the well the second mm. season's not out yet but in the first season of special you um you know you yeah, I mean, we talked before you were filming those scenes where you just have like your shirt off and yeah i get fooked in the ass in the first scene or the first season yeah and there's a lot more sex in season two i um oh good I think, I think my relationship to it is very weird i mean i think that i get really scared of course initially like like the first week of shooting, I just spent most of it like in a cock sock, which is like never fun and like never like on the top 10, you know, dream list. But I also think that there's um, a really liberating aspect of it that you get that I click into very quickly when I'm shooting. Cause I think, I think like I have spent as a gay disabled person, like my private parts, like being control all deleted from society. And I love like copying and pasting them back on and then like forcing people to like look and being like i dare you to erase me bitch like i think there's like this defiance i have from it that is very like a fuck you mentality um which i think drives truly most of my work and like most of my uh desire to create work uh is just like middle finger vibes um so yeah, I don't know. It's complicated though. Having a body is complicated and it's exhausting and it's weird and it's really hard to like tease apart what's real and like what is just a reflection of society and what it deems as beautiful and stuff like that. And, you know, I feel guilty when I look thin and I like that I look thin and I'm like, what's that about? What's that about? Um, so it's all very complicado and we're just along for the ride. But I feel like your book talks about that stuff too. And I think I don't know. It's like your relationship to food and anyone's relationship to food and their body is so personal. And like why I like get mad when someone like calls me brave for getting naked. I'm like, lol, brave. You know what I mean? Uh, like, wow, good for you. Or like even the body positive. You're like, does that mean I don't look good? <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't like, call me brave if I look good. You wouldn't call Blake Lively brave for getting <laughs> yeah. naked. Are you kidding me? <laughs> but I think like a part of, yeah, it's like even the body positive movement, I just feel like everyone's relationship to their body is so deeply personal and it's not a one, one size fits all journey. And um, it's really complicated and you just have to let people have their feelings and their relationship to it without judgment, which I think, you know, I have to be honest, like when you told me the plot of this book, I remember being like, wow, that's a lot. That's a lot. That's an ambitious project. And you're going to be talking about a lot of thorny issues that a lot of people would shy away from. And as usual, you sticked, you stuck the fucking landing because I'm a gymnastics queen, uh, you know, because again, you're writing from a place of authenticity and 
truth. And I think you can't combat that. It is, it's your experience. Like, I mean, it's not your memoir, obviously, but you can tell you're coming from a very pure place. And um, it really reads that way. Anyway. Um, I haven't gotten canceled yet. We're going to see, though. The book's only been out a week. You guys, there's still time. Questions. There's still time. You, can, you, too, you can be the first. You can be the first. Um, Actually, okay. someone did get mad at me for calling myself an alt-jap on Twitter. And oh I'm like, honey. Like, they were like, that's a slur. I'm like, baby, until you've walked a mile in my bat mitzvah, like, oh, no. Yes, no. And it was like some white bread eating bitch. I'm like, I, I'm like, you're not even a Jew. Like, honey, that's yeah. why you got to delete Twitter. Then, then people can't reach you. It's very, it's very big in Sex and the City energy where he tells Carrie, she can reach me, but I can't reach her. I like that. <laughs> All right. I have, two more, I have two more questions and then we're going to do open it up uh, for the Q and Slay. Okay. Um, <laughs> I feel like I would just like be remiss not to like talk about that this novel is like gay in a way i mean like I, I i forget i'm like oh yeah this is like a lesbian love story in a way and reading it as a gay man there was a lot of the coming out experience and like the kind of secretive behind the scenes like sex stuff and like the you know someone putting i remember i don't want to like spoil anything but there's like one hand holding scene that is so reminded me of this trip I took with my boyfriend in high school back from Santa Barbara and we're in the backseat of his car and his parents were in the front and like he wasn't gay to them or whatever. They, well, he wasn't out. He wasn't gay to them. Uh, that And we held hands, but we did it in this like, it was so intense because it was like very discreet and it was like, we were we we might as well have been fucking in the backseat. Like the way we held hands and the way we inserted into each other's fingers, it was like Caligula. Do you know what I mean? And uh, anyway, I just like, were you thinking about that aspect of it or was it just a part of the book? I mean, I almost feel like we're, I mean, I feel very post-gay, but I guess a lot of the world is not. Um, you know, like, was that a really interesting thing for you to explore, the, the repression of sexuality? Well, I mean, with the hand-holding, you know, I love longing. I love limerence. I love... I love the first two weeks of anything. I love the yeah. first two weeks before the first two weeks of anything even more. <laughs> mm -hmm. So to delay, to have delay, um, you know, I mean, to be able to like, you know, for hands to be, what hands can do, sometimes I feel like holding hands is more intimate than fucking, like truly. It is, it is. Yeah. yeah. Kissing, definitely, like kissing, can be more intimate than like fucking without like a lot of kissing. You know what okay, I'm saying? Okay, fucking like, can be the least sexual thing on the menu to yeah, me. Yeah, fucking isn't fucking is not sex. Yeah. But so um <laughs> but holding hands while eating yes. twizzlers, wondering if the hand is gonna reach back into the bag for a twizzler. Once the hand reaches into the bag for the hand breaks from your hand. The hand moves to go get a twizzler. The hand is eating the twizzler. Is the hand gonna come back? Post twizzler. That is hot. Yeah, and you have to read Milk Fed to find out, for yeah. God's sakes. Will the hand come back post-Twizzler? But there is also <laughs> fucking. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, um, in terms of the coming out experience, um, uh, it's weird being a bisexual. I will say yeah. that. A, bi a bisexual. It is. It's, it's a strange thing because um, it's like, my experience, and this is my experience of everything, not just my sexuality. 
but my experience of the world too is I never feel like I'm enough anything, right? So it's mm -hmm. like, um, am I enough this? Am I enough that? You know, like what percentage? And I have found for me, like I'm just fluid, like even more, you know, I'm just fluid. But um, but it, it's weird, I think, my experience of coming out, um, you know, <laughs> to my family um, was not good. And um, it was sort of, and I retracted, you know, I like ran right back in. Um, and um, it's very similar to Rachel's experience. You'll have to read the book to, to find that out. It's very similar to Rachel's experience. And, um, but it, but there's, you know, it, it's kind of this feeling of like, there's that feeling of, is, is this necessary? You know, is this necessary? Which I think, um, I don't know. Is it necessary? I mean, I think that's something to be answered. How honest we want to be with our parents is something uh, to be answered by every person. I mean, it must have felt good to be writing these sex scenes. Well, this, like, I mean, at this point, it's like, oh, yeah. that. But I mean, yeah, I'm yeah. talking about like, you know, I'm like 21 years old and my mom's like, I want to set you up with Ben Abramson. And I'm like, right. well, um, I'm kind of dating someone. And oh my God, like, he, Ben Abramson, he's in the chat. Yeah, ben, Ben's in the chat. Ben. Ben, ben, ben Hive, rise up. Yeah. Yeah, but my mom, so my mom's like, well, why? Why won't you go out with him? And I'm like, well, I'm saying, I'm, I'm dating someone. Well, like who? Like, and I'm like, well, it's a girl. And she's like, you know, loses her shit, which is weird because she watches, she like is like, I don't know. She's like always like been quote unquote politically right. left and doesn't judge different. anyone else. Yeah. However, when it's your own daughter. And it hits close to homo. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I have Melissa Broder's mom tonight. So bring her out. It's like Jenny Jones. Woo! She's coming tomorrow to the oh. Philly event. Oh, great. Okay. Then, yeah. So you can have that moment with her then. Uh, okay, last question, um, and then we'll do Q and Slay. Uh, this is just a random question. You can choose to answer however you want. What keeps you full, and what keeps you hungry? It's a really good question. I know. I kind of do. You're like, mm, I'm like no, that's like the best question. Okay. Um. So I feel like okay. This is a book about. This is a book that explores a lot of spiritual stuff so i'm gonna answer from a spiritual perspective so every day i wake up i have this god i have this hole inside me right it's existential hole and i wake up and i'm like oh, i gotta fill the fucking hole like i gotta fill it with like i mean well it's i gotta fill it with like i gotta achieve something i gotta make this happen i gotta do this i'm not enough this I'm not. and every day it's a fucking daily remembering that oh wait it's an inside job i actually like being in the hole when i go in but mm -hmm. I always forget that I like going in. So I'm just like trying to fill it. Um, so I guess what fills the hole is like leaving the hole the fuck alone and like just like letting the hole be and like quiet. Mm -hmm. However, I'm a human being. So I'll probably just keep trying to throw shit in there for the rest of my life. And then what keeps you hungry? Just general waking up every day and needing to fill the hole. Yeah, the I, yeah. I think the feeling that my own not enoughness is... Yep enough of a it's a it's a it's a it's a hungry ghost vibe fair enough okay yeah. well boo bitch we got some wait, wait, will you just answer that really quickly and then well i answered that oh my god what keeps me full and what keeps me hungry yeah uh i'm kind of the same as you i mean i uh what keeps me full is uh things being in motion and like and getting things done and crossing things off the list and accomplishing things and um being feeling productive i think productivity is my drug and it's like my sanity um uh, we keep, what keeps me hungry 
is being underestimated um, and proving people wrong. And, and again, like that's really fun. And it's, it's been, again, the driving force, you know, never underestimate the power of I'll show you. But, um, but it also is kind of tiring. <laughs> it's kind of like, babe, like, come on. Like, do I really need to like prove some boneheaded exec named Josh in, in Santa Monica? Do I need to prove him wrong by winning an Emmy or something like that? I guess I, I guess I do. I guess I live in service of Josh in Santa Monica. Um, so yeah, so I don't know. Yeah, that's kind of it. What do you think you'd like, how do you think it would feel to like, when, do you think it would be scary to suddenly like feel like you had nothing left to prove? Yeah, I, I think about that all the time. It's like, what if I was like, what if I was like a mediocre straight white male named Josh and I was born into like the utmost privilege and the world was made for me and I just like got everything. Was like, doo, 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 you know what I mean? Um, I don't know what it would, I don't know what it would be like to be Josh. I don't know what it would be like to like not fight against something because like I truly do get off like people being surprised and being like, oh, we didn't think like, okay, okay. You know, like that really does give me such euphoria and I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But luckily, because we live in an ableist, slightly homophobic society, I'll never have to find out. Am I right, girls? <laughs> oh, my God. LOL. Okay. So let's do Q and Slay. Okay. There's 23 questions. Okay, let's do it. We don't have to answer all of them. Okay. Do I just, like, pick the ones I like? The, like, Or do you see them too, sweetie? Yeah, Who's I see them? them. I'll just. Oh, good. Uh, yeah. Then you pick. Then you pick, obviously. I'll yeah. pick. I'll pick. Okay. Um, okay. Let's see. I feel like some of them I kind of answered in the thing. Um, the jacket art. Okay. Um, fave lesbian sex scenes in film and literature represent. So I'm going to talk about literature because I one of one of the producers of the Milk Fed TV show is on here, so I shouldn't say that I don't watch TV because you're like supposed to watch TV, but I like don't really watch TV. I don't so watch TV or like movies, yeah. No, yeah. I, I'm like too much. Money. It's not because I'm like noble. I just to my the internet has destroyed my attention span. So, um, but books. Um, I'm like looking at my. Deli I love talking about books. I'm looking at my delicious shelf. Um, okay, so favorite like. Well, okay, so I love Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl. Um, that book has hot, you could say, lesbian sex scenes in it. Um, I love the poem Lifting Belly by Gertrude Stein. Um, yeah. Why are you Gertrude up in here? Okay. And that's the OG, like, like food, like, that's the OG um, gut slash de desire slash hunger um, poem. Um, I love, there's a beautiful book that has no sex, but um, much longing um, between two young girls called The Ice Palace by Tarje Vesas that I love. Um, I am going to give a shout out. Ooh, you know what book's really cool is um, that I read recently is Colette. The Pure and the Impure. Again, not. Oh, I've heard that's good. Oh, I I'm, um, I'm having like a big <laughs> Colette phase it's just like i feel like when she hits she hits when she doesn't mm -hmm. hit she doesn't hit so much but i love the pure and the impure um i'm trying to think i'll i'll come back i have a i mean i think i actually have more boy on boy i tend to like boy on boy um mm -hmm. so i think i have more like boy on boy faves but um and i could go down that wait list what are some list. wait what are some good boy and boy faves because i might need some racks oh well not to, not to hijack this and make it about gay men sure so um 
well, anything I love, there's a French writer named, um, Hervé, um, I, I'm, I'm going to like, fuck, like, I'm going to sound like a fucking idiot. Okay. H E, I'm not going to even try to pronounce it. H E R V E with an accent over the E. Okay. G U I B E R T. Um, crazy for Vincent is one of his, he's, he's a beautiful writer, but only three of his books are in three or four are in translation, but he has like a book of stories. That's beautiful. Um, I really like Garth Greenwell's cleanness. I thought that was phenomenal. Mm, so um, I really love the trying to um, massage uh, feces out of another man's ass scene in Call Me By Your Name, the book. Um, I thought the peach scene was nothing compared to that. I thought that was, that's one of my, that's one of my faves. Um, there's a, I mean, I, I could go on. I will um, okay, okay. look at my Goodreads. If you look at my Goodreads, Oh my God, you have a good you have a Goodreads? Oh my God, yeah. she's part of the community. Okay, I'm, part of the, I'm a literary citizen. Wow. Okay. I'm a good literary citizen. Yeah. All right. What other? Let's see. Oh, and of course, Brontes Purnell is the best. Oh yeah, hundred boyfriends. I just funny. read that. I just read the new book. His new one. It's so good. He's so funny. And also, um, did you read Johnny? Would you love me if my dick were bigger? No, I have it. I haven't read it yet. Um, oh, another gay book that's really good that you should read is uh, this book called Window by Alexis Penny. Have you heard of it? No. It's like, I, I, it's pretty small. It's like on a small like press. I found it at a family bookstore on Fairfax. And um, I just, it's just, it's like, it's just, just sex stories. Like, that's all I care about is sex stories. Of course. Like, Wait, can I just look at my bookshelf? Yeah. Because I feel like I'm forgetting something. Hold on. Wait, um, do you want to come to my bookshelf? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, of course. Show the readers Show what the they readers. want. Give them what you they want. See what goes on behind the scenes. Here's my. I have a lot of horses. Oh God, I have horses. candles and crystals. That's another. Wait, that's a pony. This is my. Um, this is my. Uh, I, so I got. I made a, a neon dragon. There's a. There's a golden dragon in the book, but I like pink, so I made a neon pink. <laughs> but wait, there's one book I want. Okay, so. Um, Oh, I Look Divine by Christopher Coe. That's a book that came out in the 90s that um, is about vanity. It's not like super, super sexy, but it's about like vanity. It's an exploration of like vanity and aging. Oh, um, I love that. I love And then also, can I just give a shout out, which not gay, but my whole, my girl, Marguerite de Ross. And actually Blue Eyes Black Hair is like half- it's like kind of gay because it's a woman who's like in love with um, a gay man. And like the whole book is just them like kind of staging it, like trying to fuck in it, like not working. It's so blue eyes, black hair. It's so beautiful. I okay. love that. Everything's kind of baseline. Everything's baseline kind of gay anyway, especially if you're writing it in a book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you're writing it down. If you're writing it down, it's kind of gay. It's kind of gay. <laughs> Okay. Um, okay. Rachel or Melissa. Sorry. Rachel's a character. Do you feel at the end of the book, Rachel's relationship with her mother is uh, at some level of peace? It ends three years after the novel. Oh, I shouldn't spoiler it. Um, okay. No, I'm not going to talk about what happened. What's my favorite chapter of the book? Uh, I just want, okay. We're going to do like two more questions. because I feel like we're so like it's happening. Um, how did you, Melissa and Ryan, how did you meet and become friends? Oh my God, wait, I, okay. Well, I mean, I feel like there's probably two versions of this, I guess. I don't know. I want well, yours. We, well, okay, so I thought So Sad Today was really funny, and I followed you on Twitter, 
and we met at Justa in Venice. Pause for laughs, whatever. We're that bitch. But here's the thing. I I was not, I had met a lot of people from the internet and in person it was like scary Jerry. Like skid marks on the driveway, get away from me. Like socially awkward to the max. I'm really into a URL to IRL transition being seamless. And if like someone can't hold their weight, I got back problems from carrying a lot of conversations. So when I was meeting Melissa, I was a little nervous because I was like, I wasn't sure if it was going to be like be a misanthropic moment of whatever. And it, you were just a, honestly, like a ball of like Southern California dreaminess and like so funny and you just like fucking got it and you were no bullshit and no nonsense. And like, I just found that to be really refreshing and honestly kind of medium rare. And um yeah, I mean, and then and then that was it, and then it's been self-sustaining ever since. What what's what's your perception? Well, I had been really, I really liked your essays for a long time, and but no. you were sort of friends with a crew that I like. I always assume like if if I'm not friends with a crew, I'm just like okay, they're too cool. You know what I'm mm-hmm, saying? Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you were sort of with the thought catalog folks. Oh, so oh, you like, thought we were too cool? Oh my god, God I help don't know. us all! God help us all, honey. The bar is low. <laughs> Holy shit. I think everyone's too cool. I told you, not enough anything. So anyway, so I, I get scared to try. So I'm like, I'm not reaching out. But then, um, but then when you followed me, I was like, hmm, you know, I exist. And then like I followed you back or whatever. And then when we were, and then moved to, and then when I moved to California, or I guess I don't know, it was like it happened very quickly. Like we, and yeah. then when I found out you were Virgo, I felt more at peace because I'm mm-hmm. a Virgo. And mm-hmm. astrology is bullshit, but if you can use it to self-soothe in a fictitious way, take it. Yes. Um, yeah. And I was just like, oh, like this is this like Ryan's good. Like I like Ryan. And then the second time we went to get the chopped salad, and it was like, and we've been chopped salading ever since. It's I been think so it, much. It's, we've it's, seen it's, that chopped salad through its own <laughs> personal crisis. We have, and we'll see it again. I'm ride yeah. or die. No, it's you know, it's it's. I think it's I think it's rare to kind of cultivate these like meaningful friendships, especially like with people in the same kind of field as you. I don't know. It's been really refreshing. It also just feels like. We can talk about our work and like, and I won't feel completely like pretense or like whatever. I don't know. It's just like nice to have someone who understands and isn't like being weird. Yeah. It's <laughs> nice to have people who aren't being weird. It's nice to have people you can be honest with. Yeah. Human totally. beings you can actually be honest with. Cause it's like, you know, as honest, as honest as I am on the internet, you know, there's a lot of things, whatever. Yeah. Who the no. fuck? Yeah, like vulner. There's vulnerability, and then there's vulnerability. Yeah, you know? I agree. And a lot of times, the things that are scariest to be honest about are like the most kind of boring. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, um, yep. All right. Let me do one more, and then we'll let people go because I feel like it's getting like long. Um, okay. All right. So, where did the idea of daughtering come from? It's such a. Okay. So basically, in the book. Rachel's therapist is always telling her to mother herself, right? It's the same way that we're being encouraged to like, love yourself, love yourself, you know? And it's like, I'm always like, what the fuck does that mean? Like, I don't even, like, if I knew how to do that, I would be doing it. You know, everyone's like, love yourself. And I'm like, now there's another thing I feel bad about not doing. So, um, but there's also like, you know, being your own mother. And I'm like, well, I didn't really have that modeled to me in such a great way. But um, there was actually an experience I had when I was going through a series of panic attacks, like they come in waves. And a couple of years ago, and um, I was like, and I felt that it was coming from the language, like in part that the language I was using to speak to myself was like so mean that it was just not helping. And I was like, well, how do I like mother myself? Like my therapist had said like mother. And I was like, but I, I forget, how do I do that? And I was like, well, 
maybe I can't be my own mother, but what if I was like my own daughter for a second? I love that part. And that's a revelation that, that Rachel has. I thought that was really good. That just like crystallizes it. It's like less pressure when you're the daughter. <laughs> so much less pressure. Because I'm like, I, I, cannot, I know what it means to, I, I don't know how necessary. Well, no, actually I have, I am a, I'm a fucking good daughter now. I'm a good daughter. But anyway. I feel like honestly, you've, you've dealt with a lot of things, even from since the time I've met you. And I feel like you've overcome a lot of stuff and you are stronger. I don't know. I, I feel like you've, you're, I don't know, whatever. I feel like we're both, I feel like we're both living, laughing and loving (laughs) and you know, the living and the laughing and the loving goes on. And I've watched you live, laugh and love (laughs) a lot over these past few years well there's a lot more where that came from so (laughs) oh my god someone said you are both so hot and wonderful thank you for filling the void for me tonight you know all i'm hearing is we're hot and that makes me happy thank you (laughs) (laughs) wow this has been such a fantastic night boy oh boy thank you both so much A huge thank you to you, author Melissa Broder, and of course, Ryan O'Connell. Great questions. We really appreciate it. Don't forget, you guys, you can order Milk Fed right now at skylightbooks.com. And check back to the website often because we've always got new books coming in, and there's dozens of virtual events every month. Again, you guys, thank you so much for supporting your neighborhood bookstore, Skylight Books, no matter where you are. We're right here in Los Feliz, California. And please follow us on Twitter at Skylight Books. And one more time, you guys, on behalf of today's guests, Melissa Broder, and of course, Ryan O'Connell. My name is Christine Blackburn. Thank you guys so much. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.